And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is the one you praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your ancestors who went down into Egypt were 70 in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. Love the Lord your God and keep his requirements, his decrees, his laws, and his commands. Always remember today that your children were not the ones who saw the, saw and experienced the despair disciplines of the Lord your God, his majesty, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm, the signs he performed and the things he did in the heart of Egypt, both to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his whole country, what he did to the Egyptian army, to his horses and chariots, how he overwhelmed them with water of the Red Sea as they f were pursuing you. And now, and how the Lord brought lasting ruin on them. It was not your children who saw what he did for you in the wilderness until you arrived at this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab the Reubenite. When the earth opened its mouth right in the middle of the Israel and Israel and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that belonged to them. But is but it was your own eyes that saw all these great things the Lord has done. Observe, therefore, all the commands I am giving you today, so that you may have the strength to go in and take over the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, and so that you may live long in the land the Lord swore to your ancestors to give them and their descendants, a land flowing with milk and honey. The land you are entering to take over is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot as in the ve a vegetable garden. But the land you are crossing the Jordan to take possession of is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heaven. It is a land your, the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end. 
So if you faithfully obey the commands I am giving you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will send rain on your lands in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain new wine and olive oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. Be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that it will not rain, and the ground will yield no produce, and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you, are walking, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land the Lord swore to give your ancestors, as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. If you carefully observe all these commands I am giving you to follow, to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations larger and stronger than you. Every place where you set your foot will be yours. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, and from the Euphrates River to the Mediterranean Sea. No one will be able to stand against you. The Lord your God, as he promised you, will put the terror and fear of you on the whole land, wherever you go. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I am giving you today, the curse, if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God and turn away, turn from the way that I command you today by following other gods, which you have not known. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land you are entering to possess, you are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim the blessings and on Mount Ebal the curses. As you know, these mountains are across the Jordan westward toward the setting sun near the great trees of Morah in the territory of the Canaanites living in the Arabah in the vicinity of Gilgal. You are about to cross the Jordan to enter and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you. When you have taken it over and are living there, be sure that you obey all the decrees and laws I am setting before you today. Thank you for that reading, Hampton and Josiah. It's when I go back and upload the sermon uh, on Monday morning or when I get to it, uh, I love to re-listen to the, the scripture reading. Again, Kelly is, is going to do Kids Church today, despite the announcements bulletin. It's a very special day. A pirate is leading Kids Church today. It's funny, the eye patch actually does have a pirate thing on it, too. Um, 
One of my uh, favorite commencement speeches uh, by David Foster Wallace. I have this, I like to listen to commencement speeches. I don't know what that says about me. Um, but one of my favorite ones, and that says that I have many, um, but one of them begins with a joke uh, about two fish swimming in the water. There's a, both young fish, and an older fish comes up to them and says, hey, boys, how's the water? Um, and they say, uh, fine, I guess, and the older fish swims away. And then the younger fish turns to the other younger fish and says, hey, what the hell is water? It's supposed to be funny. Um, what the, what that, that joke at the beginning sort of sets up is that we live in these contexts that we are unaware of. That we live in these sort of default settings. We live in these ways of going through life that if you don't even think about them, you can begin to think, I don't even know what that is. And so like fish swimming along in the sea, when somebody comes up to you and says, how is this spirit of the age? How is this time? How is thinking this way? And you, you both sort of go, I fine, I guess. And then when they swim away, you go, what in the world are they talking about? What I think that this, this section from Deuteronomy teaches us today is what it means to sort of choose to live out of sync with the times. To choose to not resist on our default settings, the settings that come to us through our culture, through our technology, through all the other things that sort of bind us together, but to actually find a different way of being in the world. To be able to know the water that surrounds us and to say, perhaps I'm not going to choose that today, but perhaps I'm going to choose a different way and a different path. God sets before us blessing and curses, life and death. And it is for us to choose. This graph, which many of you have seen a hundred times, I fixed this week. Fixed is a relative term, but I changed. Um, what we talk about when we look at this story from Deuteronomy and when we looked at numbers and this rescue out of Egypt is that these people live in the wilderness, which is the land of death, leaving behind slavery and sin. And what happens is they are being brought into the promised land, the land of life that is eternal, and in Christian language, the land of new creation. And then I added today where you are, which I love those maps when you go to malls or Disneyland, you are here. That's uh, just the best thing. Is one, one of the things I often say is the box is where we are, but now I, I named it. You are here. And so what's happening is, is that the people stand at the edge of promised land and they have this choice to choose backwards, back to the patterns of death, back to the patterns of sin and slavery. And, and slavery being what they were liberated from literally and, and Christians being liberated from the slavery to sin, the slavery to death. Or you can live sort of on that other timeline and this is, this is the part of it that that you can see clearly here is that they overlap. You stand as a people rescued by God in a place where you can look backwards, you can pull up the sins you've been liberated from, you can choose to live as a slave again, you can choose to set your patterns on death. Or you can believe the word that God has spoken to you, you can trust in the rescue that he has provided, and you can set your patterns on life. 
And if you do so, you find that your fruit, you're the fruit of this new creation that God is making in the world. And so the church lives in the you are here box as well. We talked last week about the church as a repentant missionary itself. We oftentimes will choose backwards to our own self-sufficiency, our own ways of securing place in the world, our own temptations. And yet the church is meant to be a colony of heaven, this place of this new land, not pulled into the old patterns, not pulled into the other ways. And what I want to connect to that, that commencement speech is, is water for many of us in the world today is on the death timeline. We swim in a world that's bent towards death. And so the name of our church that we have chosen is Defiance Church, which the last time I wrote an article it was printed as Defiant Church, and I was like, fair, but not true. Um, but what does it mean to stand in defiance of the age of death, to stand as a people of life. That's what we talk about when we mean defiance. There's three things, but one of them is that, that we stand in defiance of a world that wants to turn us away from each other, turn our ways from God, turn our ways from our neighbor in need, and instead help us us focus back on ourselves. And to sort of lock ourselves off, I think, from transcendence, that there's anything beyond us, that everything has to exist in the frame that is imminent, that is near to me, and anything beyond that is just just sort of wishful thinking. And that's easy to say we see that in the world, but I think in in our most shallow moments, I think, as Christians, it's the narrative we live by as well. Sure, God is out there, and this is the the common one I pick on, and it's unfortunate. Um, uh, But sure, God is out there promising to secure these things for me, but I also need the security of my 401k, and I need to check that and to be aware of that um, and to sort of have trust in that. Now, I always say this is not an argument against having a 401k, but it's an argument against seeing that as our security in the world that we begin to think that God has sort of got the the business handled in the afterworld, but in the meantime, I need to take care of myself. God doesn't work like that. And so what God holds out before the people, or what Moses is holding out before the people, is is this this blessing and curse, which I meant to write up there. (laughs) I can't believe I forgot that. Um, That'll be on the next one, so I can't say I'm repeating myself. Um, this blessing and curse before them, that they have this choice of how they will live in the world. And these are the live options that surround them. And, and, and their live options in another way is that they have seductions that they can go after themselves. And the passion, passage that Hampton and Josiah read to for us, this, this idea that their God is a God who will bring rain rather than them securing their, themselves with water from the Nile like before is also a temptation away from the idolatries they're going to confront in the land. There are gods who promise to take care of this for them. There are gods, we don't call them that today, who promised to take care of stuff for us. One of the things the book of Deuteronomy has been trying to do for these people who are supposed to live as this colony of heaven is to set themselves away from the idolatry of those things so that they only have the one they call the Lord, Yahweh. 
that this is the one who's supposed to reign supreme for them. And so we, too, can get tempted into these things as well. And this blessing and curse set out before them is the way in which they will navigate their ways in this new land. And it's the way we navigate life after being brought into the kingdom by, create, by Jesus. And so this uh, second half, chapter 11, deals with these sort of live realities as well as this, this way in which this land is a good place for them that has been prepared by God. One of the things that we talked about way back when we started the book of Deuteronomy was the ways in which you can read the book. That you can read it as if it's written, as Moses' words are compiled at the moment in which they are entering into the promised land, and this is always before them. You can read it during uh, Josiah's reforms. You can read it as a graduation speak. There's a speech. There's another way in which the, the, the compilers of Deuteronomy are also perhaps dealing with this moment when everything has fallen apart. The people live in exile. Everything has been taken from them. And looking back, they see in Moses' words that they chose curse, that they chose not to live the way that he had promised them in the land. And this is unique because, and this, this is true for Christians, oddly enough, this is unique because when they do wrong, when, when wrong happens to these people, Israel, those who wrestle with God with, with the name, they think it's their fault, not their God's fault. Often when you, when you study other religions other than sort of the three monotheistic religions, even today, there's this sort of way in which if something went wrong, maybe you didn't do it the way that you should have. That if something went wrong, it must have been God's judgment upon something we had done. And it's this type of introspection that I think sets us apart. We don't just look for the perfect and good in all things, but we look for what God might be teaching us and instructing us in as we um, discern our lives and our times. And that's what I think this second half has to deal with in some ways, is to call them out back to that they have thrown off these things. And that's 11 through the end, and it ends with this idea that there's, um, you started as 70 people who went to, into Egypt, and now you are more numerous than the stars. That God names this for them. But what I want to do today, and, and I was worried I wouldn't have enough to say, and that's never a mistake for me, so I always need to stop that, um, is focus on the last part of chapter 10 for a moment just sort of walk through what's at stake there. Because what happens is, it begins with these words, and now. What happens in the book of Deuteronomy from this moment sort of on is story time is over. Um, 12 through 25 are sort of this second command, these second laws, and we'll spend, I think, two or three weeks in 12 through 25. Um, because I think the identity part comes from 1 through 12, to know who we are, um, as we went through the book of Leviticus, we tried to, to say that those laws are faint truths of what we get in Christianity. And we'll talk about that with circumcision to, to some extent today. Um, so that's not to slight 12 through 25. I think that there is truth in that. But I think in 1 through 11, we find this narrative, who these people are supposed to consider who they are, what are the stories that will keep them on the tracks, and how they are to live in this world with this God who has pledged fidelity to them. 
And so at this moment, Moses says to them, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask? Have it up there. Uh, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commandments and decrees that I am giving to you today for your own good. This is what the Lord, the God, asks of their people. And one of the things that, that to go back to last week, is what happens in, um, if we were to consider this in the, the context of marriage and infidelity, what God has said to the people in their stiff-neckedness and in their infidelity, I will not destroy you. What I think happens, having counseled some people through marital challenges like that, the party that's wounded often has to finally admit if this is going to work out. I will not destroy you. If they're continually holding out the possibility of destroying the other person with the error that they've committed over and over again, the healing can't take place. And so what God has promised to these people before then is that I will not destroy you. Despite your stiff-neckedness, despite your turning away, Israel will continue to exist upon the earth. There will be trials and there will be judgments, there will be blessing and curse. And it's often in, in Deuteronomic theology, which is a word that is as much fun to read as it is to say out loud, um, uh, that these things are more the consequences of what you've done rather than the direct judgment of God. Now, the Old Testament is complex. It's going to play both cards on that at different times. And so you have to, to, to say, well, I like Deuteronomy. <laughs> uh, sorry, you're going to get to some prophet, and it's going to be the other way around. So just have fun with that, as I do as well. Um, but oftentimes it's their own destruction that becomes manifest through this rather than God's sort of sweeping them away in Deuteronomic theology. And what this, this, this passage here reminds us of Micah 6 to 8, if, if you're familiar with that one, is what does the Lord require of you? Um, it says the same thing as what does the Lord ask of you? And here it's directed to Israel particularly, and it's, it has these four imperatives around it that you are to fear that you are to walk, um, you are to love, and you are to serve your God. This is the way in which they are to exist in the world going forward with these four imperatives over them. And it's for us, and, and the second part that we read today holds the ways out in which this can become true for you, which is by being continually reminded of them. Talk about them when you get up. Tie them on your hands. It's replaying the Shema in both these instances too as well. Is that you're supposed to have these four things be with you and to have your total commitment be towards the Lord. The next verse, and we're just walking through the end of 10. Um, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens and the earth in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them and chose you their descendants above all the nations as it is today. This is one of those amazing, if you slow it down and read it slow enough, it's one of these amazing truths that's repeated after um, this middle section. Again, in a different way, it's the Lord your God, uh, to, the, to the Lord your God belong the heavens and even the highest heavens and the earth and everything in it. The cosmic beyondness of God. 
God is the one who created and sustains and, and, and maintains and gives life to all things. Yet, the Lord set his affection on your ancestors. The Torah, I think, is always holding together for us this divine sort of overarching God of God, Lord of Lords, who is the one who rules everything, and his desire for particularity in a people. His desire to become manifest in a certain community, in certain relationship, and that this um, uh, manifest cosmic God designs to live in the particular, to be in the particular is a truth that is deep and rich for us. Most notably because this cosmic God, for us, takes residency in Jesus Christ. Sort of the ultimate particular in some ways. That he desires to be in one. That this is where you will find this God. Next comes the, um, the particular mandate for these people. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. When I uh, picked Romans for Brian to read, I thought this will make sense to have somebody in the middle of worship get up and talk about circumcision, not realizing that if you haven't spent the past week with this portion of Deuteronomy, you're like, wow, that, was, that came out of nowhere. Um, uh, sorry, Brian. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you really... You know, it's a weird spot for that, but, um, but it makes sense now that we're here, uh, which was what was all along, is that you are to circumcise your hearts and therefore do not be stiff-necked any longer. That God is desiring for these people to move beyond that, that sort of stiff-neckedness into a softer spot. Several commentators this week pointed out that to remove the hard skin is to make a soft skin for God to sort of come into that this is the way in which God is calling us to be in the world, is to remove that. And in this, in the last passage, last week, their greatest sin often is their stiff-neckedness. What's the solution for stiff-neckedness? To circumcise your hearts. Paul picks this up in Romans, and we'll talk about that in a second. But, but one commentator said, to circumcise your mind, um, or one translator did that, and I was wondering, why mind instead of heart? And then you look up the Hebrew word that is translated heart here, and it's translated like a bazillion <laughs> different things. But what it seems to mean, heart, uh, hearts for us today seems to have lost that, that what it might have meant to the, why we have this translation forever has to do with the seat of all your affections. The seat of all your affections is to be directed towards this to be cut in this way, to be open to God in this way. See, what sometimes when I hear with your hearts do this, I'm like, oh, I'll do it with my heart, but the rest of my body can do something else. Um, that's, I hope I'm not alone in that corruptness. Um, but, uh, but what this is closing off that possibility is to say to do it with your mind, to do it with your heart, to do it with your full self is what needs to be cut off for you to live with this God. And it's the solution to the stiff-neckedness. Um, this is the quote on the back of the bulletin. True chosen Jewishness is not a matter of outward marks or appearance. It is a matter 
of inner reality, a reality perceived not by other people, but by God, before whom such reality is honored, and where the appearance, however honored by other human beings, is not. That, to, that even for the Jews, this was not meant to be just the cut, and then you were fine to do everything else, but it was meant to be something that went deeper and which was enacted in the world. When we talked about this way back in when it was first mentioned, I think in Genesis, we talked about how you can think like I can follow God, give everything to God, have God be everything that is my life, or I can lose the tip of my pinky as a choice. And what happened with people in time, and it is our sin nature as well that does this, is says, oh, all God wants is the tip of the pinky, and then I'm fine. And it actually seems like that's, I mean, I think that there's a way in which you could say, like, that seems like a good deal. Like, I get to be this God's sacred possession, and all I have to do is give up, uh, we'll say, the one on your non-dominant hand, the pinky, and then you can live in this way. When, in fact, what it was meant to symbolically be is a way in which God is going to repair everything within you. It's supposed to be the opening by which it comes in. And what happens is, and we've done this with other acts within the church, is you turn it into you've came forward and received um, uh, Jesus at a Billy Graham crusade, and you're done, which is honestly not that hard. Um, and Billy Graham was gifted at that, so it really is. Uh, you will feel compelled to do it even if you don't want to if you go to a Billy Graham crusade. But the fact of the matter is that's meant to be the start of the thing. Deuteronomy in this passage and in other passages really has no room for cheap grace. It's the grace that God is with you that calls you into more. So we did the particular mandate. The motivation, again, here is cosmic in particular. For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. And then in particular, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. The God who is God over all the other gods, who has his own divine counsel, who is so high and can't be bought or bargained with, in concrete defends the cause of the fatherless, the widow, and loves the foreigner residing among you. Giving them, going back to the cosmic, food and clothing. It goes from this uh, 10,000 feet to the two-foot food and clothing. And, and Deuteronomy is holding those things together. I think we read this, we're used to this as Christians, but it's quite an amazing sort of thing to combine together in two verses, is, is that this is one who is so far beyond, and yet one who is so near. There's a, there's a phrase, um, I forget whose prayer book has it, but I wrote it down here. Um, um, sorry, I thought I wrote it down here. Close as breathing, um, and as distant as the furthest star of God. God is as close as breathing and as distant as the farthest star. And we see that here is that God cares and defends these people. This is, in some sense, God becoming the original Good Samaritan, too, if you're familiar with that passage, is that God is one who binds these things up. Um, and it is God who does these things first. We often think that to please God... We care for these things. 
but it's actually to embody God, to embody God's particularity, we do these things. We get it wrong. It's, it's God wants us to do these things. Rather, God does these things, and he also gives us the grace to join him in that work. Martin Luther was asked, uh, who defends the fatherless and the widow and cares for the poor? He said, no one but God. God is the one who does that work, and we merely join in that. Here's another particular mandate that follows it. And you are to love the foreigners, for you yourself were foreigners in Egypt. You are to love the foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Here's where that story time, which we talked about in verses 1 through 11, plays out. Part of is knowing where you came from enables you to do this, and enables you to do this in a way that goes beyond, I think, moralism. You yourself were here. And here is who you are to care for. Now, one of the truths that many people who, who work with addicts know is that the worst person for an addict is a former addict because they've been there and they have often very severe judgment on how to help people out of it. And it's sometimes that that is effective, too. But what happens is if you really understand yourself as a foreigner, as somebody, and Christians are supposed to understand themselves this way, as ones who were slaves in Egypt and slaves to slavery and death, is that it gives us an, an um, intimate contact with people who exist in that today. Largely lost on us, I think, to see that people struggling with are those people who are struggling in the land that we ourselves were in before. How to care for that, we can debate about. But we are called to love those who are caught in that place as we were caught in that place. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. Four imperatives, again, as this passage winds down, that we are to fear, to serve, to hold fast to him, and to take our words in his name, to have him be the one whom the reality of words exist upon he is the one he is the one you praise he is your god who performs for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own uh, eyes your ancestors who went down into egypt were 70 and all and now the lord your god has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky again god here tells the people of where they have been and how God has brought them out of that and made them a great nation in the world. And so we are to find a way in freeing ourselves from the dominant norms through this, to be caught up in this God, to be find ourselves in a distinct place in the world. A people who take seriously this last half of chapter 10 can't but help to be functionally different than other people. It's a mark like a circumcision that will correct your stiff-neckedness and bring you into God's goodness. We'll close with one thought. Um, we're, yeah, I thought about not doing it, but it's here. So uh, it is the one, and sometimes I don't do it even when it's there. It is the one and same reality which underlies the eternal turning to God and the external serving of the world. So this is a quote about 
compassion unhinged from the love of God or the love of God unhinged from compassion. And Rowan Williams here, before we get too far into it, is talking about what uh, the Christian tradition has deemed the dark night of the soul, which is this sort of stripping away of all things and finding yourselves in this one vulnerable spot with God in which God sort of um, becomes all that is and you become aware of that. In the tradition, it's also... It's a depth to which nobody should want to go, and it's a depth to which we're all sort of called at the same time. Um, there is one conversion. The conversion to the world has little, the conversion towards caring to the world has little to do with the fashionable notion that God is to be found in the world in the service of others, rather than in prayer and interiority. In, interiority. If conversion does not begin in each person's private hell, in the meeting with God, the crucifier and the crucified, in the depths of the heart, there is no ground for that second-level conversion. But once the self has been dethroned, there is only one possible translation of this into bodily life, and that is the service of neighbor. It is an act of holiness. So as we read passages like this, the church today has this thing of weaponizing it to say, do you care for the foreigner? Do you do this? Um, and, and then minimizing the need to pray and to be near to God. And what Rowan Williams is saying is that there is no two movements here, but they are one movement into this act of holiness. And it's where you meet that that you called into this spot. And so Deuteronomy, the last part of 10, uh, I think that we should just care for the widow and the orphan and forget about what it means with the four imperatives. I think we should just do the four imperatives and we should forget about the fatherless and the this, that, and the other. And the church unfortunately today often feels called between choosing choosing between these two things when in fact there is no choice it is one thing and in it's one thing that's where our particularity shines forth because when we do these things without the four imperatives we go into the world just to join along and be just like them we don't go with distinctiveness we don't go knowing that we were there once before. On the other side, if we just do the imperatives and never go into the world, we forget where we came from and we get where God's heart is set also. That God in his cosmic meets these people in the concrete. And so it is for us as Defiance Church to not just defy the spirits of the age and becoming holy and set apart for God, but in our holiness and set apartness to be drawn into the things that God cares for in the world. And as I often say here, it's that ancient art of neighborliness, of caring for the person near to you, of coming to the one broken upon the side of the road, that you'll find the life that God is calling you to. Let us pray. God, you have set before us blessing and curse, life and death, as real choices, as a people called out of Egypt by you, out of slavery and sin and death, as those lost before and found by you. Call us into your holiness. Call us into that promised land. Call us into the motivations and concerns that you share so that we can be your people and that you can be our God. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.
Amen.